Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. This is the first time we've had two episodes in a row for quite some time. (laughs) Um, Let's kick off with the one that I think is potentially more controversial and get it out of the way. Uh, Which is um, Prince William and the football, the women's football. There has been a lot of conversation over the past few days of the past week or so uh, because the England women's football team made it to the final of the World Cup and uh, William who is president of the Football Association which kind of governs English football men's and women's uh, will not be or didn't go I, I wrote this before it happened but it's now already happened so we know um, but he didn't go to Australia to watch them play in the final and there has been a massive backlash in the press and on social media and things to his decision not to go and I, I should warn you all I wrote my notes when I was very angry about this and I'm trying to chill out a bit so, um, <laughs> But I think, so we talked about this actually pretty much almost a year ago, exactly, um, in episode 32, Very Good Amateurs. And that was for the Euros, the women's Euros. I don't care about football one bit, not interested in the slightest, <laughs> but I am a contrarian. So if there is a some, if there's, a, there's an issue like football, for example, where I genuinely do not care about it one way or another and I don't have any opinion on it, I still have this thing where if I see somebody else has a really strong opinion about it, I will disagree with them just to be awkward. <laughs> and, I love it. Yeah. And I also did debating at school. I was a competitive debater, president of the debating society. No big deal, you know. Um, but um, That's my glory days. Um, but I still, I think because of that, I'm quite used to like being given a standpoint and having to come up with reasons why that's the best view and that's the best argument. So I, if I see something, I can come up with reasons to oppose that person's point of view very easily. So I want to, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I wanted to listen back to episode thirty-two to try and see whether you know what my views were at that point in time, um, and to kind of try and see whether or not my views this time were just me being contrary and just me disagreeing with people for the sake of it. Um, and my view last time, I think our view, we shared, we shared a view because most most of the time we do. Um, <laughs> Uh, Our view in that episode was that it wasn't okay for him as the president of the Football Association to be going to so many men's matches, but to be almost entirely ignoring the women. My view this time is slightly different, but I I don't think I'm just being contrarian. I think that it is my my point of view. Yeah, my view is also different. Well, my view, okay, is that it's fine that he didn't go. It might have been nice (laughs) to see him go. But I'm not upset at all that he didn't. And I do have reasons for this. I mean, to be fair, I probably wouldn't have such a strong opinion if other people didn't have such a strong opinion about it. <laughs> but I I do think that the way that I feel about it is that there are genuine reasons for it. Uh, yeah, my broad view um, is very similar. It's essentially that if he'd gone, that would have been really nice. But I'm kind of glad he didn't yeah, because yeah. it annoyed everyone. Yeah, um, well, that's yeah. also fun. <laughs> Yeah, and I I went through like I think it must have been a bit like you did. I went through all of my arguments, and I was like, I need three strong core <laughs> arguments about why I'm right, and I backed them up with evidence. So. 
I'm ready for a fight. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So my first argument is, I think the backlash last time I think was justified because he really had not done anything for women's football at all. While there's always more that people can do, I think that over the last year, since he was criticised last time, he has improved. He, you know, he went to the FA Cup final back in May with the women. Uh, he did one of his personal tweets that are definitely 100% written by him <laughs> back in August of 2022 when Jill Scott retired and she was an English women's football player. So I, I definitely think that more could be done. There's always more that could be done. But I don't think this is the same situation as it was last year where William had shown like very little interest in women's football at all. So it is a different situation to me. I went through the um, last kind of two sets, so the men's Euros, the women's Euros, the men's World Cup and the women's World Cup, and looked at what he did for both of them. Now, they're not completely identical situations because they both made the finals of the Euros and the women made the final of the World Cup, but the men didn't. So it's not completely identical, but it's similar enough. So last year, when we spoke about the Euros, the big discrepancy was the men's Euros. He attended all of the matches from the quarterfinals onward, uh, the last 16 onward, except for the quarterfinals, which were in Rome. Whereas for the women, he only attended the um, final. But then I looked at what he did kind of around those dates. And I he met the women's team before the Euros um, last year. He met them at St. George's Park, which is where they train. And I went through the court circular because I don't follow William's engagements very much. And I found no evidence that he met with the men's team on Zoom or in person before the men's Euros. So that was already a difference. Um, And then I looked at the World Cups and for both of them, he met them fairly sort of in that build up to the World Cup. So he met the men pretty much just before the World Cup and handed out their shirts. And he went to the women's team at St. George's Park again and met with them all and gave the manager, I believe, of England, Serena Wiegmann, her sort of bonus CBA for being Dutch. Um, but if you take out the, like, the Euros matches for the men, which he only actually did two more than he did for the women, it wasn't a massive difference. It's really even what he does for both of them. And I know we see him more at, like, Aston Villa matches, but like I also I've never seen him at Leeds United and I was sitting there and I'd be like the president of the FA does nothing for Leeds United. <laughs> it's it's a conversation that is very valid to have about like the discrepancy between men's and women's sports and we had that in episode 32 and I think last time it was it was notable that he had been so enthusiastic around the men's matches compared to the women's matches especially because the women's team were much better. Um <laughs> I feel like that people are trying to have that conversation and are just making William the fall guy for it almost when it's like that is a bigger conversation than just about William and I do think that over the last year he has made that effort to try and you know promote I mean I know the only reason I know as somebody who's not a football fan the only reason I know somebody like Jill Scott or Beth Mead is because of Prince William (laughs) I wouldn't I would have no idea if he hadn't met them I always think like social media is so fast moving and we're like well people care about women's sport today so they have always but I I think back even when the last women's world cup was like 2019 it wasn't on the tv it wasn't being aired every day on ITV and BBC like it just wasn't and they made it to the semi-finals in that you know when the men made it to the semi-finals in 2018 it was like non-stop national talking point 
So it has it has been a really quick turnaround. And I think everyone, men and women, and you know, person people who have been watching sport didn't shoot women's football and still don't, the same as men's. And like you said, it's very much William is the fool guy. <laughs> it's like, oh, he can be blamed. Yeah, I mean, it is a different situation because obviously he's the president of the FA, but I am finding it very amusing that there's a lot of people who are like, William doesn't care about women's football. It's like, did you watch the last Women's World Cup? Let me ask you that. Did you? But then my other big argument, it's Australia. Yes. Yeah. For argument number one. <laughs> for argument number one. So last time it was different, I, again, because both of the matches so the euros and the men's it happened in a few different places but most of the men's matches happened in the uk and like the big ones happened in the uk and the women's matches also happened in the uk so it was a very this is a point you made actually in episode 32 about like it was unusually easy to compare because they happened in the same place and they were a year apart so we could very easily compare what had and hadn't been done for the you know for the women this is in Australia. This is not the same situation. I don't think people really... Have people just forgotten how far away Australia is? Like, <laughs> it's really far. It's really far away. And I think something that's also particularly notable for William is that he is a climate change activist or a climate change... Camp- not an activist, that's probably not the right word, but a, a leader, a global leader in climate change. <laughs> like a football match, as far as I'm aware, is 90 minutes long. The vast majority of that time they would have been watching the match. It's not something that they needed to be there to do. They could have watched the match from home. So I don't really count that 90 minutes of watching the match. So basically, all he would have been flying to Australia for is potentially spending, what, three, four minutes in the locker room with them? Yeah, (laughs) he wasn't playing. And people are saying because Queen Letizia and um, Infanta Sofia, who are from Spain, are, went out um, and not William, that, it, you know, it's it's terrible. But to be honest, I'm really surprised that Spanish people are OK with the extortionate amount of money that will have been spent to send them to Australia for what is essentially a five minute photo opportunity at most. Not to bring Harry into this, but he mentioned climate change like one time and then went on a private jet and no one has ever shut up about it. Like, <laughs> Harry could breathe and be like, remember when you said you were against climate change and went on a private jet, Harry? It's like, could you imagine what we'd have to deal with if William was like, yeah, I'm just going to private jet myself over to Australia or like mm-hmm. RAF jet myself over. And everyone's going, no, it's not being hypocritical. It's like, it is a being hypocritical. And even if it's not, you spent the last five years calling his brother hypocritical for doing the same thing, essentially for saying climate change is bad and then going on a private jet. I I just don't understand why anyone ever expected that he would go. No, they kind of said that like right from the start, like he's not going. Core argument number one I had was this argument people were saying was that he should have, well, actually it's kind of one and two, but I'll focus on one for now, was that he should have travelled to the final of the World Cup as like the heir of the British throne. Mm -hmm. Um, The optics, he is also the heir to the Australian throne. Mm -hmm. To travel to Australia... For the first visit since the coronation to support yeah. England. England, yeah. It's bad. That's yeah. just an awful choice. Like, that's, it was bad. And I, I can understand the argument of saying that, oh, it's sad that um, William, for some reason, hasn't been to Australia, a country he is the heir of, to host the World Cup. I, I get that point. But then I did my little research and there have been no other no men's World Cups held in Commonwealth countries in William's lifetime. So we can't use that as any arguments. Um, the only men's World Cup, the last time a men's World Cup was held in a Commonwealth country was in 1966, where it was held in England. So if this one wasn't. We can't really compare them. That's why he, the royals live. And for women, 
Uh, they did, in fact, hold the 2015 World Cup in Canada. England made it to the semi-finals. They, in fact, came third. No one in the BRF went there. Mm-hmm. William was the president of the FA. He was, you know, Charles was the heir to the throne. Where was the outrage yeah. <laughs> that Charles, the heir to the British throne, did not go to a Commonwealth country hosting the World Cup? That's such a good point, actually, about the Australia thing. And the, I, I hadn't even thought about that about like the optics of going to Australia to support England. There's a lot of people, that's a narrative I've seen is like, he's not going to support England firstly, and he's not going when it's being held in a Commonwealth country. But like, yeah, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been going to root for Australia. So <laughs> nobody was upset that he didn't go and root for the Australian team. I just, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing. If there had been some kind of visit that they could have wrapped it up with that would have been fine but it's just he's already going to go over to um, the US he's going to is it Singapore for yeah Singapore Singapore for a climate change thing the problem for me I suppose is that he didn't prepare for the fact that he wasn't going yeah so I think that you know he's released a video with Charlotte but he could have also uh, you know released more messages or he could have released more personal tweets or whatever and I hope that when they come back to the UK, he holds some kind of reception for them at Windsor Castle. Yeah, I was thinking about like what I think he like should have done. And mm-hmm. most of it was just like more like, you know, release a video of him like before the semi-finals. you know, little things yeah. that would have just boosted it. And the things like, like I think he should do it, it's like if there isn't a reception, because that was something that was a difference actually between the men's and women's yacht rows. Like the men had a reception afterwards, even though they didn't win and the women didn't. And I don't know whose decision that was. Like, it might be winning. I'm not meeting women footballers. What on earth? (laughs) You know, I don't know where that decision came from, but it was a difference and it was a notable one because men always get receptions when they come back from anything. So I would be disappointed if there wasn't a reception for the Lionesses in, like, December or something. Yeah. But I can't judge him for not doing it while we we haven't got there yet. (laughs) I also did look up, just completely off topic, but I did look up every Men and Women's World Cup final since 2000 just to see if who which other kings and queens have gone and so Letizia obviously went this time um in 2019 for the last women's world cup Willem Alexander went but the only other two royal countries who have made a final have been Sweden and Japan and they didn't send a royal so it's like 50 50 on it so it's not like out of the realms of possibility that William didn't go but anyway my third core argument our core argument too, which is the argument that people make was like he's the president of the FA, that the person who does the role of what you would assume is the president of the FA, the president of every other country's FA, is the chairman of the FA, who is a woman called Debbie Hewitt. Um, so I went back to 1966, the last time England made a final, when the Queen was there, and Prince Philip, and they handed out the trophy. Now that doesn't that doesn't happen happen anymore because when the trophy was in England it got stolen and the dog called Pickles found it so he wouldn't even have that job if he went to Australia but the the then president of the FA was the seventh Earl of Harewood so George LaSalle who is the late Queen's cousin he didn't attend so the last time we had a president of the FA a member of the royal family doing royal duties in the same position as William with a men's world cup final the president of the FA didn't attend and I understand the argument that William is the president of the FA and it's a job he's a role he's taken on. Mm-hmm. But the FA haven't asked him to go. Like they've said in multiple videos that they knew he wasn't going and they're fine with that. They have no problem. Um, and then I was being really pedantic 
And World Cups aren't hosted by football associations. They're hosted, hosted by football confederations, which are like um, big groups of football people. So the FA are not in charge of what happens at the Football World Cup in uh, in the match earlier today in on Sunday. It's uh, the Oceania Football Confederation and the Asian Football Confederation who are co-hosting it. But the president of FIFA always gives out the World Cup. Like, that's his job, men and women. That's what he does. Um, and then your alternative medals, or the people in the line where they shake down, tend to be the World Cup ambassador, the confederation presidents, if they're there, who they weren't this time. That No one's brought that up as a big deal, but the confederation presidents weren't there. That seems to be a bigger deal for me. The FA presidents or chairman, so this time the president of the Spanish FA and the chairman of the English FA were there and the prime minister of or the president or the king or whoever of the hosting nations and the prime ministers were there so everyone who needed to be there was there apart from a few very important men in football who weren't and there's been absolutely no outcry anywhere that the president of the Oceania Football Football Confederation <laughs> did not turn up to the women's World Cup final Partly I want for them to just justify the research I did about football. <laughs> but also, it's they're not equal positions. Like it's an honorary role. Like no one wants Kate to go into battle as the Colonel of the Grenadig, you know, as the uh, I do. No <laughs> Speak for yourself. No one expected to actually go fight in the army. I, I obviously don't have anywhere near as much detail on any of this, but I did have like two sections of sort of my section about why I think it's okay that William didn't go which I've already we've just covered but also like a section about how the narrative around this has bothered me the narrative around it has just been a little bit odd to me and a bit annoying so and I think part of it is like the fixation on William in particular like there's a couple most articles are like William isn't going to the World Cup and neither is Rishi Sunak in like small print and it's like okay <laughs> why is he getting off quite so easily I know that he again he's not the president of the FA but he is prime minister so you know it, that is also a fairly important job and all prime ministers like to pretend that they like football and women so you know I would why is there not as much outrage directed towards him as there is and you know and as you say the what was it the Oceania Confederation yeah, Sounds very the Star Wars. Football Confederation. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, nobody's upset about that guy who didn't go because he's not, or woman or whoever, because they're not as famous. I think it's because of the time of year, um, because not much else is going on. And so this, they call it silly season. One of the narratives that I've seen that's really bothered me, and you kind of touched on it a little bit there as well, is like, I've seen a few tweets that are like, well, the Queen would have gone. Um, <laughs> would she... I, I was going to put a swear word in there, but I put it in my notes, but I'm not going to say it out loud because I don't want us to get a, a 18 plus rating on our podcast. But no, she wouldn't. <laughs> they post, they all post that picture of her um, at like the 1966 thing, which was 11 miles from her home. It was in Wembley Stadium. I looked this up on Google Maps, 11 miles away. So that's why she went. She would not have, there is no way in hell that the Queen, even if she was a bit younger, would have gone to Australia for the final of the women's football. She was patron of the All England Tennis Club and she didn't go to Andy Murray's finals. Um, 
and it was massive for sports and they were only six miles from her house um, <laughs> so if you think she if she couldn't be bothered to go to a monumental occasion for British sport that was six miles away from her home because she wasn't interested in it there is absolutely no way that she would have gone all the way to Australia and so it's just it's this like hysteria that people have got about this situation because there's nothing else going on that they're just saying the most ridiculous things they're getting upset at, at the most ridiculous things and like that no she wouldn't she wouldn't no there's i mean not only did she not leave the uk in like the last eight years no. but like comparing it to 1966 which i know i've done like eight times in this episode but still like <laughs> they were very different events like that yeah. was black and white yeah <laughs> on tv <laughs> we've got color tv now like it's a very different type of thing I, I, the the main argument seems to be that William doesn't care about women's sports in the same way that he cares about men's sports. That seems to be the argument that people are making, which I understand is a you know it's an important conversation that we need to have the disparity and all that sort of stuff. But I'm Scottish, and <laughs> William chose to be president of the English Football Association. And as a result of that, it means that every single tournament that Scotland has ever been in or ever will be in, William has rooted for us to lose. Every single one. And I don't mean by that, I mean, like he might root for us to come second, maybe. Um, but he he wants England to win because he took on the position as this honorary position as an English football representative. So he will never, ever want Scotland to win over England. So the, he will always want us to lose. And it's the same with Wales. And he's Prince of Wales. Um, and, you know, this has caused a bit of controversy about his his um, al alliance with English football when Wales was in various matches and things. And um, he, he clearly wasn't rooting for them to do as well as he was rooting for England to do. None of the people, the English people on Twitter who are very upset about this, none of the English members of the press who are really upset about this have ever said, well, it's a bit unfair that he's aligning himself with the English team every single time over the Welsh or the Scottish teams. Um, and I think it's, you know, if I, you know, the example I mentioned with the Queen, she, if we want to, if we want to say that there's inequality, she went to the 1966 World Cup, but she couldn't be bothered to go to Scottish Andy Murray's uh, tournaments. So I'm going to create a new narrative that all of the members of the royal family hate Scotland. It's, who, if they, so you have to accept, like, if if the Queen would have gone to the England women's football match, then you have to accept that she doesn't like Scotland as much as she likes England. <laughs> That's the payoff for it. So, you know, I I just think ultimately. William is not against women's sports. He is pro the English men's national team. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. Well, I, I think he, he cares about the English national team more than he cares about the Australian national team, more than he cares about the Scottish national team, more than he cares about the Welsh national team, more than he, perhaps he cares about the men's English national team more than he cares about the women's. But it's also one of a million other things that he cares more about. You know, I think this idea that it's sexist I can understand why people come to that view, but I genuinely don't think that it is on his part. I genuinely think it's just that he likes the men's English national team. I also think like the FA, president of the FA, is president of the men and women's national teams and also about eight other teams, like the under 21s, the blind people, the cerebral palsy, you know, all. and I did my thing. And in July, 2023, the England men under 21s beat Spain to win the Euros. Don't think I got a tweet from William. The International Blind um, World Games, the equivalent of the World Cup for blind footballers, is happening in the UK, in Birmingham, at this very second. Wow. England are playing on men and women. William's not there. 
Yeah. He's not tweeting about go England in the blind World Cups that I'm literally hosting. And crucially, you know, neither of the press or any of these people yeah. on Twitter. It's sexism's a hot topic, and yeah. I get it. I'm a big fan of like I'm pro girls. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, yeah, girls, go girl sport. Yeah. Um, but you know, when the wheelchair football World Cup happens in Australia in twenty in October, or the deaf women's deaf football World Cup happens in brazil in november this year or the men's deaf football world cup happening in september and october this year in malaysia i expect to see the exact same level of outcry that william's not gone to all of those places because he is equally the president of the women's deaf futsal club like there is no difference in his role but there's difference in whether or not it's a nice topic to tweet about yeah exactly i mean i think ultimately i don't think william should be president of the fa I I mean, we I actually I did talk about this episode 32, but I think I cut it out um, because it was a bit of a tangent. Uh, but in <laughs> 2017, William was personally implicated in a global illegal corruption scandal, um, which had been related to the campaign that England had had to host the World Cup. And William had been a big part of pushing England. Um, and he had been involved in some meetings where it was suggested that things like... Um, uh, people could get a CBE or a meeting with the Queen if their country voted in favour of England having it. And uh, there's nothing to suggest that William supported that. There's nothing to suggest that um, William was part of these plans, but he was physically in the room when these discussions happened and he didn't ring any alarm bells or whistleblow or anything like that. Football in general, international football uh, conglomerates tend to be fairly corrupt. <laughs> um, I, that's, I don't know much about football, but I know that. <laughs> He was personally implicated in this thing in 2017, which ironically got far less outrage than this has, even though it was illegal. Um, uh, and it also it inherently, unlike taking on a patronage that is based in England um, and only works in England, it inherently requires him to root for the failure of the other four nations of the UK and all of the other nations of the Commonwealth, who he will eventually be king of. And I think if any other patronage in the world caused this much stress and trauma, he wouldn't do it. But he really likes watching the England's men, England men's national team. And so he's kept it on. In my opinion, he should. I think it would be better for him and for me <laughs> um, if he just stopped being president of the FA. Because it's just, it's whether or not you agree with us or whether or not you still believe that he should have gone to Australia and it's an outrage that he didn't. Either way, I think we can all agree that this job is causing too much tension and drama and stress and it i'm in my opinion it's time to put it to rest he's prince william he can still go and watch yes. men's football yeah. matches even if it's not president of the other they'll still yeah. give him a ticket exactly yeah it's fine yeah he'll still he won't yeah he won't struggle to get seats will he um no. so for our other half we're going to Norway, my favourite of all the royal families. That is a true fact. There's no negotiation there. Um, and we are looking at the recent birthday girl herself, uh, Crown Princess Metamarit, who is married to Crown Prince Hakon, the son of the king and queen of Norway. Um, because she turned 50 on the 19th of August, which is the day before we are recording this, um, and she has got one of the more interesting lives of any mm. royals, so we thought we would have a little look at her, why she's great, some minor controversies that she ended up and brought in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just give you the lowdown 
only crown princess of Norway. Mette Marit was born on the 19th of August, 1973, to Marit, yes, I'm going to say Yesem, and Sven, oh, it's like Haibi, that's how they say it, it's like Haibi, hey, I don't know, I'm not very good at Norwegian. And she was the youngest of four siblings, growing up in an area of Norway called Kristiansand, which is a kind of seaside resort. So I think in some ways, her upbringing was fairly standard you know would have been similar to Hakon and every other Norwegian child so like she loved to ski I would say in other ways her upbringing was quite difficult so they weren't like in abject poverty or anything like that but they weren't massively wealthy the area that she grew up in was very multicultural had high levels of crime um, and I know that her her father struggled with alcoholism throughout her childhood leading up to her parents divorcing in 1984 compared to a lot of the other royals who've married in who like you know Claire whose father was a multimillionaire or Kate whose parents were multimillionaires um, you know her upbringing was more challenging. I read um, a lot of interviews with her school friends who said like as a young child she was the youngest of four so she was always you know like a quiet sporty it's almost like the exact same descriptions people give of young Kate they gave to young Meta Marit up until kind of like she reached sort of high school, as they call it in Norway. Um, but, you know, it was one of those, you know, loving family homes with problems. And there is, I didn't really know where to put this in. So I've just said it's a favourite random story of mine uh, that happened in her childhood. But I didn't really know where to slot it in naturally. Uh, when they were apparently when they were doing a class project um, that had something to do with the royal family and she was the only one in her class who like didn't have a bit of a crush on crown prince Hakon and she said that he was childish which I've always enjoyed (laughs) that's so sweet Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah I think as she said in one of her recent interviews which I think was the one you sent me the link to um that she kind of because there's only like a month between her and Hakon they kind of she's always felt even before she met him that they kind of were growing up together um so I just think it's interesting that like even as a child Obviously, she never anticipated that she would be the future, she would be his wife and the future queen of Norway. But she she was kind of aware of his existence. And I just think that's a fun little story. Yeah. So anyway, that's just a random story that I couldn't fit in anywhere else. But I think, um, so yeah, uh, her parents divorced in 1984. You know, her dad had struggled with alcoholism and unemployment and various other things. So she spent the vast majority of her time after the divorce with her mother. And I think you can still see that today because her mom gets invited to I mean, her dad's dead, so that's why I just go to things. But, um, <laughs> you know, even before, her mother was much more of a presence. And, you know, uh, Ingrid Alexandra, like her 18th birthday, when she gave speeches, she kind of talked about how she spends time with her, the king and queen, but she also gets babysat by her grandmother all the time. And so clearly, despite all of the difficulties that might have been going around when she was growing up, she had this very close, stable, loving relationship with her mother. Yeah, and I think you can see that with how well her stepfather was sort of integrated into the royal family because, um, you know, he is a stepfather and he wasn't there sort of as a child, obviously. She lived with, you know, her parents until she was 11. Um, and they uh, her mother didn't remarry until a bit later on. But they were like, yeah, this is Rolf. He's part of the family too. <laughs> we love Rolf. Things kind of got a bit difficult when she hit her teens. She took a little bit longer than some others to finish education. I mean, I don't know. This is very pop psychology. I don't know if it was because she'd had a difficult childhood. I think in interviews she said that sort of like she just had had enough. 
so she went away and she studied in Australia for a little while um, and then when she came back she yeah she took longer to finish her education and I saw something that said that uh, because she was a couple of years older than the other kids in her class she was kind of seen as like a mother figure by the other kids oh that's just who she is she's always been the same I think Metamarit reminds me more of more like somebody like Daniel, who was never really very academic and started his own business and was really successful in that area. Like she, education was clearly not something that came as naturally to her by the time she hit her teens, but she was clearly somebody who was well liked and um, popular, and you know, it uh, just a nice. She, it seems like she was just a nice person. Yeah, and I think you know, it's it was really interesting to me to read some of the interviews he's done recently when she spoke about her sort of um, exchange program to Australia and she just kind of described it as wanting to get away and on one hand she was 16 and that's what all 16 year old girls want to do is get away from their family um, but also you know to be saying it not as a 16 year old but as a 50 year old woman sort of looking back you know it's very much kind of like sometimes as that kind of nice quiet peacemaker you need that complete break to be yourself again yeah Um, and I think you know in a lot of interviews she's given she's spoken a lot about how it took her quite a long time to figure out who Meta Marit is and not who like all the roles she'd done throughout her sort of childhood and I imagine this was probably a really sort of key moment for her making such a big decision yeah definitely I mean I think I can speak from experience on this one. Um, the perfectionism and the kind of wanting to fulfill a role that you feel you should is not sustainable. Um, <laughs> there always comes a point where there's like a break that you, you know, and for me, it was with my mental health. Uh, I, in a second, I'll get onto what it was for Metamarit. But I think, you know, it, it's just, um, it, it's a very difficult position to keep up of always trying to feel always feeling like you have to be somebody who you're not and or not really knowing who you are which I think is a normal thing that most teenagers go through but you know I think um some of us struggle with it a bit more than others <laughs> um <laughs> and so yeah from Retta Marit once she was sort of in her teens she kind of had what well, she I think she refers to it as like a bit of a wild phase <laughs> um uh she began partying quite a lot she was very involved in the party scene in Norway um, she dated a guy for quite a while who was very active in the drug scene. He was a convicted drug dealer. And then she got pregnant with a friend of his, Morten Borg, who had just been a fling, um, who was also a convicted drug dealer. Um, and she had, in 1997, she had a son with him called Marius. So she, yeah, she had, I think this is the most famous thing about Metamarit really, is this kind of, this wild phase where she had a child out of wedlock. <laughs> yeah, I knew essentially that like I knew the bare bones of it like she'd been in the party phase she'd had a fling she'd had a baby and then I kind of looked into it more and I was like like first of all she did what every well not me personally because I'm a goody t-shirt but what every normal teenager does at the age of you know 18 to like 25 which was you know experimented she went out she went to parties she tried things you know it's not she wasn't you know hardlining drugs into you know old age pensioners on the week you know she was just well we don't know that do we great i don't have evidence she didn't do that but i'm gonna go on a limb she was just living her living her best life the the man she was dating before morton her sort of first partner was sort of was significantly older than her so she was 
it was about 20 years older than her and um then went on to be a real thorn in kind of her side and some of the, I was reading unfortunately some kind of like interviews with him and things that he's sort of done around their relationship and afterwards and I hadn't heard of any of them and I know I wasn't around well, I was around but I wasn't paying attention to roles in 2001 but it also feels like something that would have come should have come up again because it's mm. quite horrible some of the things that she went through so he was talking I read an interview that he gave um well just before her wedding to Hakon um and in there he spoke about how after they broke up he didn't accept it and he would follow her he'd sit outside her apartment one time he threatened her in the street with a knife and he was Thank like you. I was a bit desperate and I was like God. and he said the only reason he stopped was because she started sort of having a fling with Morton who was his friend and yeah. he thought it was fair enough for his friend and I was like no <laughs> that's not okay I yeah I didn't know that either to be honest I think that's that's so interesting that like that's stalking behavior that's really i've watched so many documentaries <laughs> i watch a lot of true crime documentaries um and i've watched so many that are about like they're called they're called horrible things like killed by my lover and stuff like that and but they, they all start that way of like um a guy who you break up with him and you can't let go he can't let go of you and then he starts following you and then the, the violence sort of escalates like she's lucky to be alive that's really terrifying i know and i had no idea and the fact that it was coming all from him, it was like, oh, yeah, I did this. I was really desperate. And I was like, okay, you don't, at this point, like 20 years later, you still don't realise this is a bad thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's something that isn't mentioned a lot. And, you know, I, in a minute, I will get to sort of reactions to her her life at this point later on. Um, but the, the narrative was always like the wild child um, who kind of, you know, she had this rebellious period of, in her life and she was involved in the drug scene and she had a child out of wedlock and all these sorts of things. But like, there's not really a much conversation about the fact that she clearly was preyed on by somebody who was significantly older than her, who had a criminal record. Like she was a, you know, she was uh, played volleyball and was the mother to the students at, at her school. She was a very sweet um, young woman who clearly was just a bit lost and then was taken advantage of by this guy who was significantly older and had criminal activities who then stalked her and threatened her with a knife like there's not that should be the conversation really it shouldn't be about you know Metamara had this wild period it should be about like she was abused and mistreated and potentially groomed and like had you know it sounds like the relationship with Morton was almost like protective in the interview she gave one of the interviews she gave last week she mentioned when they were talking about like what's the bravest thing you've ever done and one of the things she said was choosing to have be a single mother and choosing to have marius and i thought that was such interesting phrasing because we all of us we kind of look at like oh accidental single mother like she got pregnant out of wedlock and she she got pregnant and it was the way she phrased it you know she said it was like she knew she going into it when she was pregnant she Morton was not going to be a devoted hands-on father <laughs> so she knew at that moment she was going to have to bring up her child alone and she was like yeah I'm gonna make that decision and did then do all the right things with that decision and I think you know at the age of however she was like 21 it's an exceptionally brave decision to make particularly you know in the early sort of in the late 1990s yeah well, this is actually where, you know, and I talked about this a little bit before in the Valentine's Day one, but this is where my affection for Metamara really comes from. 
um, is this is this period of time. You know, I didn't know all of this stuff about the violence and things. That makes me admire her even more for being able to get through it. And I, I think we should make more of that as a fandom, like the fact that this, she survived this. But anyway, um, the, this whole situation really reminds me of my mum. My mum had me as a single parent. I was born in the month after she turned 18. So she was a little bit younger than Meta Marit. Um, But I think it is an extraordinarily brave thing to do she made you know made this choice and like Metamarit was working as a waitress my mom was working in a petrol station Metamarit decided at this point after she had Marius that she was going to start studying again and she was going to try and you know get a career and turn her life around a little bit and my mom did the same thing when she went back to university and she eventually became a teacher and um you know Metamarit has said that she her family were incredibly supportive and her mother would uh, babysit Marius when she was going to study and like and would help to support because uh, Metamara only had a waitress salary really at the time. And um, it kind of, again, reminds me of my fam- family situation because we lived with my grandparents until I was about four or five and my mum got married. So it kind of, my affection for Metamara has always come through the way that she kind of approached being a single parent and the fact that she had had this sort of wild period um, where she, maybe some choices were made that were not fantastic or not the most healthy thing for her. But when she had this, child it kind of changed the trajectory of her life in a way and I kind of I've always related to that a lot yeah and I also think it really sort of speaks to the person she is with the fact that Marius's father even though they were never in a relationship and even though he was very much in those kind of early years distant from them sort of as Marius got a bit older you know she was sort of I don't say welcomed him with open arms but she was like yeah you know have a relationship with Marius if you and Marius want that. And he didn't, you know, he wasn't paying child support, not that she needed child support when she married into the royal family. <laughs> but I, th- <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, quite rightly might have removed themselves from the kind of the party scene and been like, right, I'm cutting those ties. I don't want mm-hmm. that sort of yeah. to be there. But she was sort of confident in herself and, yeah in her own little family structure with her mum and with Marius to be like, no, I can, I'm happy for this to, you know, to happen. I think it shows a real strength of character. Definitely. I agree with you. So she at this point had decided to kind of go back to school and to study. I would say her plans were slightly interrupted (laughs) because in 1999, she ran into Crown Prince Hakon at a garden party for a music festival called Court. They had met previously in 1996 when she was pregnant with um, Marius. Obviously, she was pregnant, so um, (laughs) I'm I'm sure they sort of said hello and that was it, but they went on their separate ways. Um, But when they met again in 1999, so not, you know, Marius is only a couple of years old, um, something sparked between them and they began dating. And I mean, from what I can tell, their relationship progressed very, very quickly. It did. It was so fast. Yeah, because they met at this music festival. And then at this point in time, Metamarit was still studying, but she decided that she wanted to study in Oslo. She she didn't want to study where she was and she wanted to change her course and things, but she didn't have anywhere to live. And so they moved in together, what must have been after like a few months. Yeah. And, you know, their relationship came out early in 2000. So it really didn't take very long for for them to sort of accept. And I suppose that's, again... I can't say anything about this because, again, to remind me of my family situation, my stepdad, who's technically my stepdad, but I always call him my dad. So if I say my dad, that's who I'm referring to. Um, he proposed to my mum on their first date. 
I love that story. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite story. They're still married today. Um, uh, but I've always asked him about sort of why he did this. And I think a lot of people, he'd said that he fancied my mom, but a lot of people who he talked to about it were like, you know, she has a kid, so you can't just date her. And like, you know, she's always going to pick the kid over you and you've got to make sure that you're committed to this relationship. And so for my dad, that was, well, I'll just ask her to marry me <laughs> to show my commitment. Sometimes when you've got a child, things move really, really slowly because you've got to make sure that the person's right for you and all those sorts of things. But sometimes the opposite is true in that they move really, really quickly um, because you have to show a commitment fairly early on that, you know, if you're dating somebody, you have to accept the fact that if this goes well, you might end up being a step parent to their child. Yeah, it was in my head because I knew they sort of cohabited before they were engaged, which is Mm -hmm. a shocking event in the uh, 90s sinful. <laughs> um but i i assumed there was like a few years and then when i was looking at their sort of engagement announcement in december 2000 and they were like oh yeah we kind of met up again last year like, <laughs> what last year yeah. like, this is a year guys come on yeah they were together for like 18 months <laughs> they were like yeah let's get engaged married let's go guys come on <laughs> yeah definitely so it was it, it seemed like a very fast moving relationship um but you know clearly it's worked out because they're still together so sometimes fast moving relationships like my mum and dad and like metamara and Hakon, sometimes they work but yeah so i think once once the relationship kind of came out it wasn't very long before metamara's past also came out there's actually a parallel in my notes because I can't be bothered to write Metamara, I've written MM every time. And there's actually a parallel here with another MM, uh, Meghan Markle. Because not only did her ex-boyfriend sort of come out of the woodwork and start selling stories, but so did Metamara's father, who she hadn't had a very good relationship with for a while. As we said, he'd mentioned he'd struggled with alcoholism and then they, the parents had divorced and she'd lived with her mother. So they didn't have a fantastic relationship at the time. Um and so he started selling pictures and stories and things about Metamara to the press. Yeah, it was. I read uh, a, a transcript of one of those sort of early sort of documentaries they did, where they were essentially dragging up any dirt they could find on Metamara. And it was, you know, there were obviously some lovely mentions in there from her her school friends in particular. He was like, "Yeah, she's lovely," but it struck me that the I was the damaging parts because they're not damaging. They were just painted in a bad light. Came from her father, her sort of male friends, and also the the father of the fa- her host family in Australia came out and was like, "Yeah, I gave her her first alcohol," and I it was very I don't know men, but I felt yeah I felt so uncomfortable reading it. And some of the things like this, her, the father of her host family, he was you know it's the type of thing that could be perfectly innocent like yeah she's grown into a lovely young woman but also the way he phrased it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable and I I don't know something set off alarm bells in my head with the fact that it was a significant number of older men who at the earliest opportunity essentially reduced her to her body as a woman and you know at this point she was a young mother who was you know just trying to live her life I think yeah and I think now that I know about this violence and things that had happened in her past and the stalking and and things like that it puts the whole thing in such a different light of like the fact that that was the focus for the press the tabloids was like not accepting these kind of dodgy gross men um who were just exploiting their relationship with her or their contact with her for money and never focusing on 
what was clearly inappropriate behavior or exploitation or abuse like it's it, they used the information that they got to build up a narrative of her as being a wild child um who had been drinking all the time and involved in drugs and all these sorts of things and and irresponsible and, and inappropriate entirely and there was never like a a narrative of her that was built up from that same information of somebody who had been consistently exploited throughout her life. Girls like men in the press are bad. Men. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know this was like the early 2000s and, you know, so we're getting into the peak culture of like Britney Spears and, um, you know, this was not a great time. Not, I don't think there's ever been a great time for press ethics, to be honest, but this was not a great time for it. I, I, I guess I'm not surprised as such that that was the angle that they chose to take. But it's just interesting to me that, you know, it's 2023 now and I genuinely, I've I've been blocking about Royals for a decade and I genuinely didn't know about that violence and stuff that had happened with Metamera. And I didn't know that like her host family in Australia had been plying her with alcohol when she was a teenage girl. Like I didn't, I didn't know all of these things. Um, and I think that is a, that is a deliberate choice that the press make to amp up some parts of the narrative as opposed to other parts. Yeah. And it, you know, I think it's always that kind of, particularly for married and Royal brides, it's the pre-wedding um, extravaganza like their last ditch attempt to get the best stories they can. And you've seen it with any royal married in royal bride. But I think, you know, in a lot of ways, she was in the most vulnerable position of any marrying in royal bride because she was a single mother. And I think, you know, it would have been a lot harder for her because she had a son who had a relationship with Hakon to break off that relationship if the press got too much than it would have been for any other royal woman. And I think, you know, the ethics are just not on guys it's a shame that we haven't had this collective conversation until you know maybe we'll start it grace maybe we'll start this conversation yeah, single-handedly now. single-handedly yeah. um about like reframing the way that people talk about metamarit's past so yes their engagement was announced fairly rapidly in december of 2000 and it obviously as expected caused a massive controversy <laughs> in norway and even like from surprising sources. So like the king's sister, whose name I could never pronounce, she's died now, Ranhild, Ragnhild, Ragnhild, I don't know, who was a massive snob, went on record and was just like, oh, well, she, I think she's totally inappropriate. I can't understand why he's going to marry her. Um, she, it's terrible that she should be normal, you know, really inappropriate things. Um, she also said it about Michael Louise's husband, um, Ari Ben. Um, but, you know, so there was backlash from lots of different corners of Norwegian society about metamarriage. Though it's it's really interesting to see how she handled it. Before the wedding, so very shortly before the wedding, she gave an interview where she very tearfully talked about her past specifically. And um, she confirmed that she'd had a wild past. She apologised for it. And she condemned drug use. I don't believe that she ever sort of said, this was my role. This was, you know, I took these drugs or um, <laughs> I I knew that this guy was, you know, there was no, there was no sort of like, this is exactly what I did. But she just kind of um, gave a general apology. I don't think that you would see something like that in Britain, for example, because we tend to be a bit more closed off. I think they try and shut that down as soon as possible and they probably wouldn't address it point blank. There have been other situations of royals who've had sort of controversial pasts who have addressed it head on, like Princess Sophia in Sweden. But her approach was like, I'm not ashamed. This was my past. And, you know, I wouldn't make the same choices today, but 
it led me to being where I am today. And so I probably wouldn't be married to the guy I'm married to if it wasn't for the decisions I'd made in the past. So she was very much like, you know, so what? Who cares? Um, whereas Metamare, and I, I do think this is maybe because of the difference, you know, uh, in Sweden, it was 2014 that this interview Sophia gave about her past versus 2000 um, or 2001. It was very different sort of climate for women. And it, it I think it worked. I'll say that it really worked. Like the, the, the anger towards her about the drug use pretty much went away straight away um, amongst most people. Like everyone was like, okay, but it's always been slightly uncomfortable to me that she had to like go on television and weep in order to be accepted by people. Yeah. It reminds me actually, again, of Megan mm. and how just before her wedding and those like last couple of days, she had to release a statement like, um, I, please leave me and my dad alone because anyone was talking all anyone was talking about in like the entire world was whether or not her dad was going to come to the wedding or she was going to go and visit him like royals are you know they have a job in the public eye and they accept that and there are some sacrifices that come with that but their private lives are their private lives and for for both in this case Metamara and Megan their private lives happened before they were married in mm -hmm. they weren't mm -hmm. you know public servants they were just people living lives they both had to then sort of lay every lay a lot of personal mm -hmm. you know private issues in public to for the public to be like yeah, okay we'll accept you then and you know again I always think for Meta Marit she was a lot younger than Megan was and she had to do it in a televised interview which is different than a nice statement which the BRF could get away with Definitely. It's not something that you really see as much for the men. Like, I know it's a different situation because Ari Ben, who married Hakon's sister, Marta Louise, um, he was obviously not marrying the future monarch. But he's he had a controversial past as well. He never had to do a tearful TV apology. <laughs> she is a very tearful person, so maybe that was just her natural reaction. She cries about everything. I will get to that as well. But um, <laughs> but you know, I think it's just it's interesting that I don't I I find it I wonder if the same thing would happen now. Yeah, and I also don't necessarily think that, you know, the meta merit of today would give the same interview. I think, you know, I almost feel like she'd be similar to Sophia in the way of being like, but it led me to this. You know, her wild child pass, I know she you know, was clearly upset about it. It, it gave her Marius. And, you know, yeah. there's no universe where she wouldn't have wanted that to happen. Yeah. So... Yeah, so no, I I I agree. It's a, it's a really interesting sort of time capsule almost of like what was going on in the culture of the press and the public at that point of time. But I do think to the Norwegian people's credit, they did f see that as sort of acceptable. They sort of saw the interview and I think a lot of people felt sorry for her and accepted her apology and moved on with their lives. And I don't, I don't, again, in the early 2000s, don't know if that would have happened in Britain, to be honest. Um, I think, I don't know if it would have happened. I mean, people didn't, get over the Meghan Markle thing and that was not that long ago so <laughs> they got married in August of 2001 and I found a study or a, 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 an article that referenced um, an opinion poll um, that was about a year after the marriage and they found that only 10% of people thought that she was a bad role model for young people um, and that was only within the first year so clearly it didn't really matter all that much and actually I was reading in the article there was some sort of anthropologist or royal expert or somebody who was talking about um the reaction to Metamara and she said like nobody really cared that she had a son out of wedlock because apparently in Norway it's ev like everyone 
has the child before they get married like marriage rates are not as high and people tend to even in that day and age people tended to be quite modern and like live together and have a child but not necessarily get married so it was perfectly normal the thing that they actually found a bit bothersome was her lack of education that was worse to them than having a child out of wedlock which is very opposite to the british system i think i actually thought that oddly when i was reading wikipedia um like to find like based on my notes and it was they sort of skipped over the 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 wild child phase they were like she's uneducated she did this but she didn't graduate and I was like okay Wikipedia chill out but yes anyway they got married in August 2001 they had two children together Ingrid Alexandra in 2004 and Sver Magnus in 2005 Um, and so Metamara has been a royal for over 20 years and I could not face going through all of the big things that have happened to her over the last 20 years because I thought we've got to finish this podcast at some point so (laughs) I did not do that but what I did was kind of I would say her time as a royal has been patchy. Um, I don't think that she is unpopular by any means. I mean, I don't know because I haven't seen Norwegian opinion polls and even opinion polls are always to be taken with a pinch of salt anyway. But um, I would say that there have been times where she has been criticised and it's perhaps more criticism than contemporaries like Mary or Daniel have had. Um, But she's also had a lot of good things as well. So I've just kind of pulled together some good and, and not so good things that I think are notable about metamarriage. Yes, I've got like five or six odd like odd things. I've got four, so let's see if we've got the same sort of things. So my first sort of thing that I think is a good thing, it's just basically about her work. I would say that it, I always forget how many like really good positions she has and like how many sort of global positions she has as well. Um, so her areas of interest I think are actually quite clear. Like there's a lot of royals where some, you know, uh, like Grand Duke Henri, when we were talking about him the other day, I have no idea what he's interested in. Um, I don't know what Prince Felix is interested in other than bioethics. Um, that's all I know. <laughs> wine. And one wine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's all I know. There are lots of royals where it's like, I don't really, I can't, I, when somebody says their name, there's not a cause that jumps to mind. Metamarit, there is. So I think that's an achievement in itself that like she's clearly committed to things and is enough of a representative that I immediately associate her with certain stuff. So I think of her as connected to like HIV AIDS um, and literature as being kind of two big areas of work for her. Um, So she has her just, I'm just going to rattle off a few different positions that she's got, but her and Hakon have their own foundation. She is a special representative for UN AIDS, uh, a young global leader for the World Economic Forum. She's the official amb- ambassador for Norwegian literature. She started up her own women's organization, with uh, which had Melinda Gates as the chair. Um, so, she, you know, we're, we're talking some big global positions. It's a lot more than a lot of other royals have. Um, and I think particularly in her early years, I have lots of memories when I think of Metamara of her going on like overseas missions for the UN or the Red Cross. Yeah, I think her UN work, you know, in HIV and AIDS, particularly with young people, kind of, you know, that promotion of um, sort of reducing stigma with young people and talking about it is very almost like key to sort of core Metamarit values. It's, you know... It's her. It was her passion. You know, a lot of her work, even you know, her literature work is really focused on sort of young people, teenagers, um, and giving them a voice and supporting them and kind of making decisions or having access to the right sort of, you know, support or medical equipment or whatever. And I think um, 
it really tracks with, you know, right from when she was young and she acted as the mother to the other people in her school. It's the same role. It's the same person all the way through. Yeah. There are some areas where she's surprisingly radical. Like she's the only royal that I can think of who's regularly been to like sexual health lectures for young people. Like in Britain, we're all very... um, uh prudish and um like oh no sex please we're british is a is a phrase uh, um and i think like we do have royals who who obviously talked about hiv aids but like they wouldn't talk about sex uh she's definitely the the mom of all the friends like her kids friends when they have an issue they're like uh meta mary i need some help and I mean, Ingrid Alexandra said that, and she said that as well. Like, it, it, one of the lines that I sent to you from the recent interview that was my favourite was when she talked about how um, her house feels like a youth hostel. She's the cool mum who's like going to give you advice and um, listen to your problems and likes to know what's going on in your life, but not in like a prying, annoying way. So, the next one I had um, that I think is sort of a notable thing about Metamarit is she's very emotional. <laughs> Victoria is similar in that she's very emotional, but I would say Metamara is the single most emotional royal in the world, probably. And and sometimes it's very, like, positive. Like, she's very tactile. Like, you'll often see her hugging and kissing Hakon. And she's cried at every wedding she's been at, even weddings of, like, other royals, um, where the entire ceremony is a language she she doesn't speak. She still will cry the whole time. She cries at every, like, big birthday that happens. Um, And it is kind of, like, a a funny, sweet thing of, you know, we all made jokes when um, Ingrid had her 18th birthday about, like, how long it would take Metamara to cry and who was sitting next to her would have to have a box of tissues to hand out to her throughout the whole thing. And that did prove to be true. She did cry a lot. Um, but I do think on a more serious note, it's I think it's it's actually an asset for her. She's she feels very human, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the best example I had of this was actually the Utoya terrorist attacks. Her stepbrother, um, Trond Bernson, died. He was her the um son of her stepfather who married her mother uh, about when she was sort of late teens, early twenties. He died in the Utoya terrorist attacks um, and he died a hero. He died saving his son, who I think was about 10 years old. It's very moving. And Metamarit was out at the memorials and she was weeping. And when I say weeping, I mean like if it's a whole body thing of like, I've never seen a royal, I've seen a royal's cry. I have never seen a royal react in that way to anything the, the the pain that you see on her face when you see those images of her from it and i think that attack was you know norway was a, a, an air, a country with very few m- large-scale criminal thing you know violent acts like this it was it completely shocked the entire country and it was this huge moment in modern norwegian um history you know obviously on some level it was just her being an emo- emotional person and being openly emotional that her stepbrother had died but it also it kind of connected her to the country and to the pain that the country was feeling. These are the moments where royals really matter, where there's like a moment of national pain and you need somebody who's a figure of national unity to kind of step in and and help everybody heal. And she was able to do that through her, her natural, openly emotional nature. I feel like she was able to do that in a way that I just don't think any other royal could. That makes sense. yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the, the 2011 Norway attacks 
were a huge well, they were they were such a huge deal in Europe in particular. Like, I remember I would have been about fifteen maybe when they happened, and I remember having nightmares. It was so honest, and I think you know it was such an honest and raw display of emotion. And you know, I often think you know if if it had been a you know the British royal family or the you know Spanish royal family or or the Luxembourg royal family, that kind of softness is almost like I don't say beaten out of them but it is it's like you know you, you don't do that in public you don't cry you know it's those key like you mentioned those key moments like I always think about when during not that I was alive in the blitz but during the blitz <laughs> when the king and queen you know went to visit houses William and Grenfell like in that um, that initial visit he did with the queen like they are human moments and they are the moments that resonate with people and the moments that stick with them and they're the ones that are going to make people come out you know kicking and fighting to be like no they're a good person mm-hmm. and I think Meta Marriott has you know here was one but she's had a few and it's just because she is open with who she is yeah and you know you, it's it's impossible to look at that these pictures of her and not be moved emotionally because of how you know o- like honest it is it's like when you know like a toddler cries and someone's like they're kicking up a fuss but I'm just like oh no there's something wrong like that's a real honest emotion that's the worst thing that's and, ever happened to that toddler in their entire life like yeah <laughs> yeah like this is trauma um it's it's like that it's like this is a pure it, it was it feels very pure and real and you know it royals aren't like that royals are brilliant world's best actors you know they perform they go out and do a job and it sounds like this way you're like actually no that's just a woman and a mother and a stepsister who is experiencing exactly what every other woman and mother and stepsister in Norway is feeling right now. Definitely. I mean, I'm not Norwegian, but I I imagine if I was in that situation, feeling like somebody in the royal family can understand my pain, that's a big thing. Like, it's not just somebody who's coming to show their support, which is obviously amazing. Like, I don't, you know, the, the whole sweet Norwegian royal family handled the situation very well. You know, it's, but it's, it's different when it's somebody who can understand what I've been through. Yeah. And I think, you know, when they did the sort of the 10 year anniversary memorial, they went, Metamara and Hacker went with Ingrid and Ingrid cried. Yeah. And it felt, you know, like Metamara was raising this emotionally healthy family who can just, you know, it, her 18 year old daughter felt comfortable enough to sit next to her parents at this emotional memorial and show her emotions, which is, you know, apart from Meta Marriott, unheard of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Another The other ter- uh, terror attack in 2022, which was the um, the Pride attack, it came out oddly close to when we recorded our LGBTQ episodes. Like, it was, <laughs> She came out with Hakon and Sphere Magnus, and they, they, went, they went to look at the tributes like the immediate following day, and they were in the crowd just sort of hugging people and supporting them and you know sphere magnus was there you know as part of it and again it it really made me sort of think about how they brought ingrid to this memorial and then the year later they had no idea they were going to be taking sphere magnus to another one and then hakon went became ill with covid so she kind of did all the follow-up things by herself and again got very emotional and cried a lot it almost like it kind of really solidified it because we have you know hate crimes in the UK every other day like I remember 
like earlier this week there was a hate crime in London towards LGBTQ people and no one in the government or the royal family have you know spoken out about it and I know it wasn't you know it wasn't on the same level as a the fully fledged terror attack in Norway we spoke in our LGBTQ episodes about how few royals really do talk about LGBT rights and it was one of those things where she was sort of walking the walk as well as talking the talk we've talked about some of the good things and some of the positive things that have happened um there are, have been some controversies so i'm not going to go into depth and in, about all of them but i'm just going to sort of say a couple of them um so we talked in our one of actually one of our lgbtq plus episodes about uh, that wasn't even her baby it's called um about <laughs> her going to india to look after a baby um that had been born to a surrogate for a gay couple that she was friends with the parents couldn't go they couldn't get their visa sorted or something like that so she went over there now surrogacy is banned in norway and it was actually banned in india a year after this situation and that's surprising to a lot of people a lot of our listeners are from the u.s and that will probably be surprising to them because i think surrogacy is quite normal and i mean in the uk it's legal and things but and they might think oh well that's really terrible that it's banned the reason it's banned is that it is quite an exploitative industry there are a lot of women who are very vulnerable and living in poverty who are sort of exploited or who um you know the situation is not explained clearly to them and child's children are taken away from them and you know it's not a great industry so there is a reason why it's banned it's not just overly conservative people like it's not coming from that place at all um and that so that was a massive controversy of kind of her doing something that was contrary to um Norwegian law I think I don't think that that came from a bad place (laughs) I think that that came from her being, again, an inherently warm, empathetic person who had the means to help. Um, But it did cause a massive controversy. Um, Other some other things like um, quite notably, she was friendly with Jeffrey Epstein. I haven't mentioned him for a while. Um, I know. I was like, it's been a long time since he's popped up. Um, After his conviction for sex trafficking minors. Uh, and she, when that came out, she did apologize. She said that it, basically it was because they hadn't done their research about him, um, but that they'd cut him off anyway because she, they felt that he was trying to use Metamarit as like a, as, I guess, to influence other people or to introduce into connections. They basically just felt a bit exploited and like he was wanting something from her. I mean, it's not as controversial as Andrew because she wasn't personally implicated in anything, but she did hang out with a guy who was convicted for trafficking minors when she's somebody who's very interested in young people and sexual health and that kind of thing. So, you know, those are sort of big things, but it just it, she has not been without controversy since she got married, shall we say. Something really notable about both of them is that she kind of immediately apologised as soon as it became public knowledge. She didn't do the British thing of being like, did you say something what she was you know and she came out and I think you know with the surrogacy thing she was like I'm not trying to wade into a political issue yes I'm just doing what anyone would do to look after some babies um and I think you know that was fairly understood because even the journalist who knew she was there was like yeah I'm gonna hold off on publishing the story till you're back and all the babies are safe because that's what takes precedence here you know and I think you know a lot of even the people who came out and spoke about it did kind of acknowledge the fact that she wasn't trying to kick up a pro-surrogacy thing in Norway it just was incredibly unfortunate that helping her friends did go against you know Norwegian law and you know she maybe could have managed it in a better way 
you know, not using her diplomatic passport to sneak into India and pretend to be a nanny. You know, there were better ways to do it. But yes, that's, <laughs> not, that's not ideal, is it? Um, yeah. Um, I was, I, I knew she was on, you know, in the black books of Epstein, as every famous person in the world is, because he was a rich person and knew people. But, you know, it, you know, his name popping up again. I was like, oh, yeah, forgot about that. Um, but I think it, it was a bad decision for a woman at that point who had been in the royal family for 10 years to become, you know, to meet someone multiple times, socially and non-socially, and not do a background check. I, I background check people on Facebook all the time. <laughs> yeah, me too. These are not Andrew-level controversies, and these are not things that, like, have made the entire Norwegian population hate her. Um, and, you know, comparatively... She's not had as many controversies as a lot of people. Uh, but, to, you know, they are worth mentioning just to sort of say that it hasn't always been smooth sailing for Metamerid. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're, they're I will call them silly decisions because they're, you know, big decisions. But they were, mm-hmm. I think both of them came from almost like naivety. Yes, rather than malice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, the significant difference and the fact she owned she, obviously she owned up to them like she's a child but you know she when she apologized in 2019 about sort of spending time with Jeffrey Epstein she was like yeah I messed up I should have investigated and I didn't yeah it wasn't like oh I'm such a good friend like Prince Andrew's excuse was I was just too much of a good friend I wanted to break it off with him in person that's a stupid excuse Andrew <laughs> yeah please pretend be like oh we just accidentally end up in the same place yeah <laughs> yeah exactly but, and, and then I think the other sort of negative thing that I had, but it's not, it's turned into not such a negative thing, but it started off as a negative thing, um, was there was a lot of conversation about her work ethic. So in her early years, she seemed incredibly accident prone. Um, <laughs> she was also terrified of flying, uh, which I didn't know about her, but um, she was. Uh, so she didn't do a lot of like solo engagements. There were lots of things that were cancelled because like she sprained her ankle or she um hurt her back or she had food poisoning. And like I think over time there was an image of her that was built up that she was a little bit lazy, perhaps. And I have to say, I was guilty of that as well. Of like I always said when people asked me, I like Metamara a lot, she's really nice, does a good job when she, she works, but she could maybe stand to work a little bit more. Um, and you know, there was part of me that thought like there's only so many times somebody can be in an accident um, <laughs> and break their ankle before you think maybe you shouldn't go skiing or you know do this maybe you should let, right before an event you know so I think that was the image a lot of people had of her for quite a long time in 2018 she was then it was announced that she had been diagnosed with um, a rare form of pulmonary fibrosis which is essentially a scarring of the lungs it's a very serious illness um, it will shorten her life expectancy, but they caught it early and um, she's on medication and treatment and things like that. That definitely changed it for me. I know I felt really bad when she announced this thing because she probably was dealing with it undiagnosed for a little while. And it might point towards, you know, sometimes pulmonary fibrosis can be a result of like an autoimmune thing. Um, and I think that the, when it, they announced it, they were still doing investigations of where it came from and all those sorts of things. But like it, you know, it might be that she actually genuinely was just really uh unwell as a person and that's why she got sick so much more often than everybody else and so that I definitely I was one of the people who was like ah I feel a bit bad like I was never horrible about like oh she's so lazy and she never does anything and she's terrible but I definitely was somebody who was like she could 
work a bit more. I was reading, you know, some of these interviews she's done recently, mainly because I wanted to know if she was going to sort of mention it because it's such a huge deal. And, you know, some of the things she said, like she spoke about how, you know, she often can lose control of her breathing and, you know, she has to be more slow and make every decision is has to be a decision because she hasn't got spare energy. But the thing that really um, stood out to me was when she referenced the sort of visit they did to Sweden in autumn. Um, which we spoke about. And I thought, I need to go research that episode. Did not. Um, <laughs> but she spoke about how as soon as she arrived there, she got pretty bad. And this is like Little Miss Sunshine Optimism. And all I could think was she'd arrived in a foreign country. Hakon had to go off and do duties. Well, she probably was quite ill. Yeah. You know, and then she she still managed to do some work. after. You know, she still did other engagements. She didn't just, you know, and then she went home and did more work. And I think you know the life expectancy of people once they have been diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis is only about five years yeah and it has been five years mm-hmm. and I worry about that all the time me too <laughs> it's in my head a lot oh. um and I think you know we've had you know Ingrid's turned 18 recently Sphere Magnus will turn 18 next year this year mm-hmm. in December you know they're very young and mm-hmm. I you know and I think a lot of the work Metamarit's done recently has almost been, you know, readying her children and her family yeah. because she knows and they must all know that in 10, 20 years, she probably isn't going to be around anymore. It is it's so frightening. It is really frightening. And I've I've looked at like pulmonary fibrosis a lot of times to sort of <laughs> kind of see what's going on. Um, I think one thing that she does well is that, you know, it, it massively impacts her ability to do official engagements like in the Sweden tour which did significantly less than Hakon um but she does still try and keep us in the loop through like her social media and things and uh, there have been a lot of criticisms of her for like oh well she can go skiing um and I've had them in my inbox like why can she go ski but she can't do official engagements I remember going off on one anonymous person who mentioned that to me before and I was like she's probably going to die soon and um she's probably not going to be able to witness her children walk down the aisle she might never make it to be queen of Norway she might you know and all these things and I was like so um if she feels like she can go for a walk where she can stop where there's not photographers taking photographs of her where she's not doing her you know on a clock where she can leave at any moment um versus an official engagement where she's going to be watched by everybody and has to be there for the full 90 minutes and um is working and in heels and you know all these things like that's fine I, I and I might have been too extreme about that I think reading about it there's different forms of pulmonary fibrosis and but if she does no engagements in a single year that she's the only royal who I think except for maybe Monaco where I think that that really doesn't bother me if she doesn't do a single thing because I would rather have her alive posting photographs of her using her loom and weaving because that's what she does a lot she loves her she's got a loom and she weaves her own fabrics and stuff I would rather see her posting pictures on her social media with her and her loom uh and have her be healthy than have her going to or pressuring herself to go to 100 engagements a year yeah I think you know I think we talk a lot and quite rightly about how like royal work isn't real work it's not proper hard work to do a 90 minute engagement but for those 90 minutes it's a very full-on thing to be on in the public eye and I imagine there is I would be absolutely terrified of going to an engagement when I you know when I had a little cold and feeling a bit ill and wanting to sit down and not being able to do that I think you know the thought of being you know at a school when suddenly thinking oh god I can't breathe but you can't get out because there's like 50 photographers there is 
it must sort of interfere in you know every aspect of their life you know she is the most optimistic person and she is looking and she spoke a lot about how she looks to the future as you know like a gift and she is going to enjoy it and she doesn't care so much about who's complaining about what the crown princess of Norway does and who doesn't because she knows what she does I don't you know I'm not saying here like we should really lay off Edward for not doing enough engagements because maybe he's ill I'm not saying that but I think she's always such a good example of people being like sometimes there are you know she had this thing in the background and we were all being a bit like uh stop falling over meta marrot <laughs> if this podcast is magical and we do cause people's deaths i hope that we can also cause people to live for a really long time <laughs> um, yeah my, my one wish my yeah, one wish yeah yeah i think i just kind of want her to be like one of my surrogate mums i want yeah. to just adopt her and if i ever have a worry i kind of want to go to her with it and it's yes. very sad that i can't do that <laughs> Oh, maybe one day. <laughs> that is all we have got for this week. Who knows when we're back, but we are getting towards the end of August, so yes, you never so know. Royals might do some work in the near future. Please rate us five stars on all good podcast directories and let us know if there is anything you would like us to look at or into. We've had some lovely suggestions which get added to the list, which is how it's the entitled list. on my phone. Mm-hmm. And we occasionally go, let's dip into the list. The list. <laughs> uh, but until then, uh, enjoy your time. And it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.